0: I'm going to be teaching from the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we're going to be in Revelation, we're going to go through, I'm going to try to get through chapters 2 and 3, we'll have some introduction in in chapter 1. I'm just going to read the first three verses as an introduction, and then then, then we'll get started. So verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1 says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, time is near. Amen. Amen. So, tonight I'm going to try to get through chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are a little unique uh, in, the, in the book because they're addressed, they're, they're, it's like a letter that's addressed to some specific people. But I can't really, you know, just dive, I don't think I can just dive right into into chapters two and three, we'll do a little bit of background um, in, ch- in chapter one. First, on, on a little background on, on revelation for the people, for the uninitiated, if you haven't studied it before. So revelation, if you just kind of think of the word revelation, it's like a revealing, right? Um, in some, in some um, older, in some olders, it'll be called the apocalypse. Apocalypse is the same thing. It's an an unveiling. It's the revealing of Jesus Christ. So you hear Revelation, you kind of just automatically think Armageddon, end of the world. But the word just means the unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So the book is meant to reveal Jesus Christ to us. And it's the last book that's written in the New Testament. It was written by the Apostle John. The Apostle John and is based on visions that God gave him while he was in exile on an island called Patmos. This is at the end of his life, um, and he had made the emperor of Rome very angry, and he was sent into exile to this island, and that's where he had these visions. It is also probably the book with the most controversy in the New Testament, I don't know, I'm just making that up. I think that's true. Um, There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of symbolism. And people disagree about what the symbols mean and when it all happened, there's quite a bit of disagreement. And that's gonna be a little bit of a theme talking in verse two and three. There's a lot of disagreement and that's okay that's okay there's i'm, I'm going to go over just before we get get in i'm, I'm going to go over um some of the some of the major views you know some people are going to be are wrong right like if there's four or five major views some folks some christians are wrong but that's okay we can still have fellowship uh, with people who read the book of revelation differently than us. Um, we're going to read in chapters two and three about some very flawed churches. God is still in the midst of these churches. Um, and I think it's kind of similar. Some people are wrong. Some people have some stuff going on in their lives. We can still have fellowship with them and God can still work in their lives. So but if it's so confusing, why read it? Verse three, right? Verse three says, this is why you should read it. Even if it's confusing, even if it's controversial, if it sometimes does cause division, verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words, so that blessing's for me. Um, you, can, you can get that blessing for yourself tonight if you go home and read it. And blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart with the things that are written in it because the time is near. What is the time? What is the time? The revealing of Jesus Christ. The revealing of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the flyover. Now, the flyover isn't the main part of the study. It's just to give you kind of try, trying to be fair to these three main views. And we're going to look at it from one particular view. But because we're in chapters 2 and 3, we're not going to get into timelines. You know, if you've ever seen, uh, gone through a, a sermon on the book of Revelation, maybe you've seen like a timeline of this is when this is going to happen this is when this is going to happen. Chapters two and three, there's not so much of that. There is still some symbolism. Some people, um, and and people disagree about the timeline and what all the symbols mean. So, the first one, uh, the first big group is called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. Post Post means after um, the millennium. So, a big part of the book of Revelation, is the millennium. This is a time when Jesus is ruling in a special way, in a special way. And post-millennialists believe that most of the things that, have, that were written in the book of Revelation have already happened. They already happened in the past. Most of them happened nearby, after, like close to the time after Jesus died, not too far after that time. They believe that Christ is reigning in the millennial kingdom, now, on earth, through the church. Through the church. So that's post-millennialism. Millennia, one millennia literally is a thousand years. You will see this throughout the book, a thousand years. They don't believe that the thousand years is literal or anything like literal. It's a symbol of a long, long time. So that's post-millennialism. And there's wonderful Christians who are post-millennialists, and there are early church fathers who are post-millennialists. Athanasius, who so vigorously defended the divinity and humanity of Christ, was a post-millennialist. So, anyway. And I'm going to tell you some other church fathers with the other ones, too. So the next one is called amillennialism. amillennialism. Amillennialists, a Amillennialists, A or a means no, millennium, so they don't believe... That there's going to be a millennial kingdom on earth. They believe that some of the things in Revelation already happened and some of them are going to happen. And they believe that Christ is ruling in this special millennial way in heaven right now, but not on earth. And that at a future time, the kingdom of heaven is going to come to earth. The kingdom of heaven is going to come to earth. So that's what a That's what an an amillennialist believe. John Piper, I believe, is an amillennialist. Um, St. Augustine was an amillennialist. And the last one is premillennialism. Premillennialism, pre pre means before the millennium, believes that most of the things that were written in the book of Revelation have not happened yet. Some of them maybe, but most of them have not happened yet. They believe that Jesus will... Jesus' return will be a significant turning point in history and that he's going, there's going to be uh, a tribulation and that the, there will be a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth after the tribulation and that after that thousand-year reign, some, some premillennialists would say that it might be symbolic as well, but some think it's literal, that after that thousand-year reign, then the kingdom of heaven will come to earth. They're unique in the belief of the rapture. Most post-millennialists, post-millennialists and I believe most amillennialists don't believe in the rapture of the church. Um, Justin Martyr, who was John the Baptist, John, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle's disciple, he's the guy who followed him around, he was a premillennialist. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so there's great people, okay, in, in each one. Calvary Chapel are premillennialists, so we believe that Christ is going to return, rapture his church at a yet unspecified time. But if you're not a pre-millennialist, we can still have fellowship together, and we can still learn from reading Scripture together and be blessed by reading Scripture together. So, in light of that, the first three chapters that I'm reading, I'm going to read in the light of verse 19. Verse 19 says... Write, so this is Jesus talking to John. Jesus says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. I tend to view scripture through this, almost all of scripture through this lens. It's not just that scripture is true, right? Like if you read a history book, it's true that. Columbus sailed to the United States. It's true that George Washington sailed you know across the Delaware River in the middle of the night. Those things are true, but scripture is so true that it's it happened, it's still happening, and it's going to happen. It's how true it is. It's like another level of true. And God in verse 7, you know, he, he says, I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the first and the last. I'm sorry, that's verse 11. He says, I'm the, I'm the alpha and the omega and the first and the last. So God also, he was, what? Oh, that is? Okay. There's a lot of numbers in my Bible. Anyway. So yeah, so God is like that too. He was, he is, and he will be. Okay, and Scripture, his word reflects that quality. And so with that in mind, we're going to read chapters 2 and 3. In chapter 1, John describes that he sees Jesus in his glorified body. He's basically terrified. He faints. Jesus comes up to him and says, Wake up. I got some stuff I need to show you that you need to write down. I really like Chapter One, but if we were going to go over Chapter One, we would be here till 10:30. Uh, in In addition to the other, in addition to the other, uh, the the other ones there. So, we're going to start to start in Chapter Two. I'm going to start in verse 19 of Chapter One. Jesus says, "Write therefore what you have seen, what is, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand." and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Earlier in the chapter, John, when John is talking about when he sees Jesus glorified, he says that he sees seven stars in his hand, and he's walking... In the midst of seven lamps, seven lampstands, he's walking in the midst of them. And there's a little bit of disagreement here, but there doesn't really have to be. Some people think that, and it has to do with the, the word angel, right? The churches is, I guess that's that makes some sense, right? But he said he says that the seven stars are the seven angels, and. Some people think that that's an actual angel, that there's like an angel over the church that he's writing a letter to. I don't know how you can write a letter to an angel, uh, but he's, I don't know how you can write a letter to an angel. I tend to think that the word, which is the word angelos, which means messenger, probably is talking more about a pastor. However, I don't see why not both. Why not both, you know? Does anyone remember that taco commercial, Por que no los dos, the crunchy and the soft taco together? Por que no los dos? If he's talking to a pastor, that's easy for us to understand. If he's talking to, to an angel, maybe that's a little mystical and difficult to understand, but understand this. I, I think that it's helpful for me to understand it as both because there is a spiritual mantle, that God has placed on the leaders of the church, okay? Um, in, I, I, I think we, we went over this recently, Elijah had a mantle, right? It's like a cloak, and when he is gonna go to heaven, he takes off this cloak, and there's something special about this cloak, and he puts it on Elisha. It's a, it's a mantle. It goes over his head, and God has placed a spiritual mantle on the leaders of the church. So this is a very serious thing, right? It's a very serious thing. It means that when I'm interacting with a leader in the church, when you're interacting with a leader in the church, you're not just interacting with some guy, okay, who's doing his job, right? And it's easy to think that because it's like, oh, I, I know him, you know, like I know that He's not that funny or, or, or whatever. Or maybe one day he was kind of rude to me or whatever, right? I, it's easy to, to, to think that, but it's not just that. It's not just that. They have a spiritual covering on them that comes from God, and that means when they mess up, there's more consequences than normal. Spiritual consequences for them and for you. They're charged by God with shepherding the church, and when they messed up, the, sh- the church just isn't shepherded so well. And so there's more consequences for them and for you. That also means that when you or me, when, or I, I'm looking at my mom with grammar, when, when we're rebelling against them, uh, that's consequences for me. It's not just some guy It's the authority that God gave them that you're rebelling against. And that's serious. That's very serious. So if if an elder in the church, for example, says something like, hey, or if a pastor in the church says, I need you to move to the front, you have to move to the front so that people can sit in the back, and you're like, I don't know. I really like this seat. It's it's not just a guy, okay? It's not just a guy. That's the Lord who has given him authority to ask you to move your seat, and it's you're and you're the one who will bear the spiritual consequence. So, serious stuff. You know, to, to just to. Uh, To make it simple, think of it as a letter to a pastor, right? A pastor who has a spiritual mantle. And like with the rest of Scripture, don't just try to read and hear it as something that already happened or that maybe just generally applies, but understand it's true tonight, it's true for you. These exhortations are for us too. So chapter 2, I'm going to try to get through uh, this first Each one section at a time, and then we'll break it apart. Chapter 2, to the angel, or to the pastor, of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not and found them false. And you have persevered and endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet this I hold against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here's the word to the first church in Ephesus. And any time in Scripture when you you hear, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, it's saying like, pay attention to this. Pay attention, because he's talking to you. So this church is getting it for the first time, and they're, and, they're, and he's saying, this is for you guys. If you don't do this, it's on you. I'm telling you. Jesus is saying, I'm telling you what's what, and you've got, it's, now it's in your court. You've got to do it. He says to the church in Ephesus that he's holding the stars, and he's walking among the lampstands. So remember, the stars are the leaders of the church, and the lampstands are the churches he holds all the all the authority of the churches, and he's in the church. Now, there's two things that encourage me here, and it has a little bit to do with how before, how we talked, how a lot of people don't agree on Revelation. Some people are wrong, right? Some people believe that there's no rapture, and some people believe there is a rapture. It's one or the other, right? It can't be both. Someone's wrong. But Jesus is still in the church. He's still walking among the lampstands, right? He still holds the stars in his hand, holds these, these, the authority in his hand. And so the thing that I'm encouraged is that each of these churches is flawed, is very deeply flawed. There's good things too, but there's also bad things, and he's still in the midst of them. He's still in the midst of them. Some of, the church have, some of these churches have a whole lot going on. And he's in the midst of them, too. And he has the authority of their, of their leadership as well. It's really easy to think, I, the more I know, the more I'm sure that Christ is not in all these other churches and all these other places. There's a, that's a very pervasive spiritual pride that the more that I know, the more I'm sure that God is not in these other churches, right? My sort of fence, my, my walls become narrower and narrower. But we see that Christ holds all the authority in the with in the good and bad and in between churches, and He's walking in the midst of all these churches. I value that so much, right? I value that so much. It's not this black and white thing, even though I would like it to be, of God is not in this church at all. Right? It's easy for me to think, to look at a church and maybe to look at a Christian and to say, there's so much wrong here. God is not in this person's life at all. But he might be. And I'm glad for that because I'm imperfect and I don't know everything either. And if if God can be in the midst of some of these churches that have messed up, some of them, He has nothing good to say about them. If He can be in the midst of those churches and have the authority over those leaders have given them authority as well, then He can still be involved in my life. I can have hope in His grace when I'm wrong or when I mess up. They're imperfect. There's one or two there's two churches that nothing bad is said about but the rest of them have some good and some bad god is working in imperfect people and in imperfect churches and he holds the authority and i don't understand why they don't clean up their act or, or something like that but but he does anyway he says to the church in ephesus i know your deeds i know your hard work your perseverance, I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles and are not, you found them false, you have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. This is he's proud of them. These are good things. These are really good things. He is proud of them for their commitment to doctrine and to the faith otherwise he wouldn't say it. This is one of the things I love about about scripture that when scripture like if if God is giving someone a compliment in scripture, there's no there's no nothing hidden behind the compliment. It's just a pure nice wonderful blessing that he's telling them. He says, "I'm proud of you guys for all the good work that you have done for your doctrine which is sound and for your commitment to the faith." That's what makes these 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 chapters so strange. We you know, we look around and, he's, and we say there's good things, but there's also bad things. I'm just glad that Scripture does this, right? Because that's the world, that's the real world. The real world is messy and has good and bad stuff in, in and out of the church. He says, here's these good things, right? Good works, good doctrine, commitment, but where's the love? Where's the love? Where's the love for Christ and for, for people? Remember, someone, when someone asked Jesus, what is the, the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Where's the love? Where's the love, he says. This is for you and for me. We can know scripture inside and out. We can just have fantastic doctrine just books memorized and reading all the time, missions, going on missions trips, giving all our money away and serving so much, all good things, right? He doesn't say, he doesn't just skip to the bad part with each church. I think that God is glad of those things. But if we don't have love for Christ and by extension for the people around us, If our motivation has strayed from love, he says in verse 5, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He's saying, Martha, Martha, you're so busy with so many things. But Mary, your sister, has chosen the better thing. Let your faith and your works, works are a theme in these two chapters, let your faith and your, your, the expression of your faith, your works, be an extension of your love for Jesus. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. After each section, he ends with something like this. There's symbolism in each one. I don't know, I don't know what all of them mean. Uh, but basically it's a way of saying, if you obey me, you'll be with me in heaven. Each one of them ends up basically meaning that. Um, here, he says, I'll, you, I'll give you fruit to eat in the paradise of God. Doesn't that just sound like pleasure? Just a you're, He's in the paradise, he's in this garden, and he's eating fruit. Following Christ is a pleasure. If it's just... Get the doctrine, do the things, persevere. That's not what God wants for you. And if that's what you feel like Christ is saying to you tonight, repent. Repent means turn around and do something different. Repent tonight. If you feel like that's what's going on, burnout maybe is what you feel, and you don't repent, what does he say will happen? I'll take your lampstand away. So what happens when people burn out in the church? They just like go off the rails and leave, right? They're not even in the lampstand anymore. But he says, if you turn around, there's pleasure for you. Beautiful, beautiful. He loves them. All right, the next church, the church in Smyrna. Two, the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, he will not be hurt at all by the second death. Here he's talking to the persecuted church. He introduces himself as the first and the last. He does this in chapter 1, 2. And as having conquered death, why would he introduce himself like this to this church, the first and the last, and he conquered death? What? Why would this be an encouragement to them? Because he's going to have the final say. Jesus has the final say. Isn't there a song? Yeah, there's a song. Yeah, I don't remember how it goes, but I remember that Daniel knows how to sing it. There is, a, uh, there is a song that Jesus has going to have the final say. He is going to have the final say. And for people who are persecuted, that is the most comfort that they want. That it feels like so many things are out of their control. Their, thing, their reputations are being taken from them, their property, their life, their family, even um, yeah, even their life. But Jesus is going to have the final say. The book of Revelation is a lot about that, is a lot about how... He has the final say, how the world is doing whatever it's doing, and he has the final say, and he brings the book to a close. Things may not be going well, um, and in this church, things really didn't feel like they were going well. Some of the people had died, but he conquered death. And how does he encourage them? He says, the second death won't hurt you. The second judgment won't hurt you. You'll be raised in glory. In verse 10, he says, don't be afraid of what you are going to suffer. Scripture has an exhortation, kind of a command for the persecuted church. It's, don't be afraid, rejoice. Don't be afraid, rejoice. That's it. It's uh, today in America, I do believe there is persecution of a certain kind, but be careful, remember the scripture's exhortation, don't be afraid, rejoice. There's a lot, at least that I have heard, I've heard of complaining about persecution in America. Um, pouting, and it's just not biblical, it's just not biblical. If you, I, I've not, I have not met every persecuted Christian, I've met a lot of persecuted Christians who have gone through way, way, way worse, and they're not complaining. They're asking for prayer, for perseverance, that God would be glorified. They're asking for God's peace. They're asking for His joy. They're not like, oh my goodness, you know, like, I hate my neighbors. They're, they're, not, they're not doing that. Um, It's, I think it's disobedient when American Christians are complaining and pouting about persecution. And there is persecution, but just as a, I, I just want to, I don't know, remind us that persecution in America really, compared to the persecution in other parts of the world and, and throughout history, is not that bad. Really, it's, it's there, but it's really not that bad. Loudly, to me, loudly complaining about persecution in America is like if I have the flu and I go into the cancer ward and I say, well, I'm sick too, you know, it, it just doesn't, I know you're sick, but like, you know, take some Tamiflu, you know, you're going to be Okay. There is persecution, and it's a promise as well. All who want, everyone who wants to to follow Jesus will suffer persecution. That's a promise. You might not be thrown to lions. It might be choices you have to make at work. Whether or not it's small persecution or large persecution, the command is the same. Don't be afraid. Rejoice. Don't be afraid. Rejoice. Now, that's f- for you and me, right? Just like the first one, just like the first church. If you feel burnt out and like you're doing all this stuff and there's no pleasure in your walk, that's for people in here. That's for people 2,000 years ago who were reading this. And today, in this there's people, I believe, in this room who suffer, su- might suffer persecution in some way, and the exhortation is, don't be afraid, rejoice. He's going to have the final say. The next church, the next church is the church in Pergamum. Verse 12 in chapter 2 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So he starts out here introducing himself as having words like a double-edged sword. This should remind everyone, maybe, of Hebrews 4.12. It says that God's word is living and powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word is going to cut you and divide the good from the bad in you, in you. And he's going to do it here in this church. This church is going to, he's going to have some cutting words for them. He starts with the good. He says, I know where you live. I know you live in an evil city. And there are, you know what, to to me that means there are some cities that are more evil than others. There are some cities that are darker than others. You know, it's, that's what it, you know, he points out how bad this place is. He doesn't do that in other places. Um, Boston, I think, is a pretty dark city. I think it has a particular kind of darkness. I was walking around Boston with this t-shirt and just, um, Two people stopped me. One of them was a missionary, and he was like, you're the first Christian I've met all day. I've seen all day. I've been talking to people all day. We talked for a little bit about one thing or another. And then later, this other guy, he says, I'm a Christian, and I'm visiting this city. And he was like, I feel like you're wearing that shirt. You're like a light in the darkness. All I'm doing is wearing a shirt. (laughs) It's not that hard. But the city is so dark that one guy... Wearing a shirt with a Bible, you know, with some fire on it is like a beacon for some people, right? Um, some We live in an evil city, you know? We live in an evil city. And these people in Pergamum, they lived in an evil city. And I, I don't... I've always lived here, it feels normal to me, but at some cities, it's harder to be a Christian. And Jesus is saying, I see that. I see that it's harder, and I see you. I see you in this, in this city, in this godless city, in this hostile city. Someone was, someone was killed uh, for, for their faith, right? They're living in this, hostile, in this hostile city, but for all this righteous suffering and for this zeal, That doesn't discount, God doesn't discount what he's about to say next. It's not like there's balances, like the good weighs out the bad. There's none of that, right? It's both. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality, Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The church in Pergamum was serious. They really were. They were serious about staying faithful to God. And they did so in very difficult circumstances, right? Maybe it's easy, you know, to be faithful to God in some cities and, you know, in, I don't know, in... In Philadelphia, maybe it's easier to be a Christian. and That's a church that comes later. But not in Pergamum. It's not easy. And they were serious about remaining faithful. But they allowed they allowed sin in their church. There's two things that he mentioned, mentions. One is the sin of Balaam. And one is the sin of the Nicolaitans. Balaam is a, kind of a... Funky story in the Old Testament. Balaam was like a what was he a witch or, he was a prophet sort of like he just he wasn't a, he was a guy who knew God who just really wasn't committed to serving God but God spoke to him sometimes I don't you know it's it's a little strange and someone hires him to curse the Israelites and he basically says dude I'm not allowed to curse the Israelites but if you send some of your girls in. And cause them to sin, cause the young men to sin, then God will judge them, and it'll basically be a curse. And so the guy follows his advice, and he he's a, he sends young ladies into uh, into the, the to interact with the Israelites, and they have sexual sin with them. They commit sexual immorality, and lo and behold, God judges them for it. The Nicolaitans. This is one of the things where it's really not that important. The Bible doesn't tell us what the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is. The best guess is that it's also open sexual sin in the church. It's just sort of believing that you can be a Christian and be in sexual sin at the same time. And that this is like a super old thing that the early church had to deal with in like a very sexualized place. It's like, well, you know... I love Jesus, but I have these girlfriends aside from my wife. That's fine. I still go to church. I never deny God, right? So they were allowing that in their, in their church. It's so weird. It's so weird. That sounds unbelievably serious to me. And Jesus starts off by saying, I know you guys really do care about remaining faithful to me. I, I, it's so hard for me to marry those two, two things. Remember right at the beginning, Jesus is walking in the midst of this church, of this church that's allowing sexual sin. And he, and he holds the, the authority, the pastor, you know, this angel, the star in his hand. And, and yet they have these two things that just feel like, really like oil and water. Somehow it's possible with Jesus. Somehow it's possible, and I'm glad. I'm glad he just doesn't leave when there's serious problems. Serious problems that are our fault. They know about it. Serious problems that are your fault, right? They allowed it. It It says, right, it says that you allow these people. He doesn't take it lightly, though, right? Somehow it's possible with him to be in their midst, and for him to recognize that they actually that they actually want to be faithful to him, and also they have this egregious sin. But it doesn't take it lightly. He says, Repent. In verse 16, he says, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. No ifs, ands, or buts. He says, this needs to stop. It needs to stop or I'm going to fight against these people with the sword of my mouth. Now, there's some things in this book, I don't know exactly what that means, but I do know that you don't want Jesus to fight against you with the sword of his mouth. It's, it's a bad, bad for the person on the other end of the sword. He says, repent today before it's too late and, it could be in a, and it's going to be too late. He's going to come and he's going to fight against them with the sword of his mouth. On that day, it'll be too late. On that day, it'll be too late. Do you know that it can be too late for you and it can be too late for me? If I, if you allow sin just to be there, he will fight against you with the sword of his mouth. Today is not too late though. Tomorrow is too late. Today is not too late. Repent, he says, and verse 17, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So (laughs) this is the prize for repenting. I have no idea what it means, but that's what you get you're going to get some mysterious prizes from Jesus and also not be the recipient of the sword of his mouth. The next church, the church in Thyatira. Verse 18 says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and what you are doing and what you are now doing is more than what you did at first. Nevertheless I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By teaching, by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating the food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her onto a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her to suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches the hearts and the mind. I will repay each of you according to your deeds." Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose on any other burden on you except that you hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who's victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give to that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is, his, this is the biggest section he has the most to say to the church in Thyatira. He introduces himself like having eyes of blazing fire, and feet like burnished bronze. So two things. The eyes, he sees everything about you. There's nothing hidden from him, about you. You're, you can't keep any secrets from him. And his feet are like burnished bronze. Burnished means they're pure, right? Uh, my dad will sometimes say, white, hot, holy. White, hot, Holy. There's no sin getting into heaven, and there's no amount of sin that is okay in the church, that is okay with him, even though there is sin in the church, which he recognizes. There's no amount that is good. So as we established, he knows it's there. That doesn't make it okay. He knows it's there, and that doesn't make it okay. He starts, like he does with the other ones, he says, I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, and that you're doing more now than you did at first. This is going to sound familiar, right? These These people are doing good Christian things. They're taking care of the poor, they're taking care of the sick, they're taking care of the elderly, they're visiting people in prison, they're preaching the gospel, they're tithing, and... They're doing it with love, right? They're doing it with love. Remember in the first, the first church, right? The, to the church of Ephesus, he says, I see all these things you're doing, but you're not doing it with love. To the church in Thyatira, he says, I see all these good things you're doing, and I see your love. Wow, that's pretty good, right? That's like a seems like a big improvement. One of the things that I depend on in Scripture, like I said, is the surety of these words. He's saying that they're doing it with love. He, he knows. He knows that they're, and he, he's not, there's nothing hiding behind the statement. It's true. They're doing it with love. They have love. They have faith. They're serving in and out of the church. They're enduring persecution. They're remaining faithful to his name. They're not being ashamed. Wow, it's like all the good things from all the other churches all put together. Plus love, right? But, what's the but? Jezebel. Jezebel, Um, Jezebel, he says, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. So this is a, Jezebel in Revelation um, comes up again and will come up, it's not, will come up, comes up again in Revelation, and she represents, Jezebel is a figure from the Old Testament who's this wicked and powerful queen, wicked and powerful queen, And in Revelation, she represents the systems of the world, the systems of the world, the money, just all the money that can be made, right? The power, all the power, all the politics in the world, that's what she represents. It's a a system a worldly system of money and power that is in opposition to God. It's in opposition to God. And and Jezebel, the figure in Revelation, represents this system of money and power. And Revelation is partly the story of the downfall of Jezebel, of this just absolutely dominant worldly system of money and power. And as you go through the book of Revelation, she comes up, and at the end of the book of Revelation, she's dead. There's no more, this system, this system of money and power that is dominating the world is replaced by another system, is replaced by a godly system, is replaced by Christ's rule And what does he say to the church in Thyatira? He says, you're tolerating Jezebel. The people in the church, they have real genuine love for God and other people. They are serving a lot and they're deeply, deeply emotionally and even spiritually invested in money and politics. Just, it's in their heart. They have real love and works that are motivated by love, and they are also die-hard Republicans, or they're die-hard Democrats, or they just they love cryptocurrency, or they just love the stock market, and they're ju- they 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 love God too. So how can these things, right? They love God. They love the work that God is having them do in their life, and they really are serving the Lord, but they also have this other love. And remember, Christ is in the midst of this church. You know, Jesus says that you can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is like worldly possessions. And here's some people trying their best to serve God and mammon, and He's in the midst of them. He's in the midst of them. It's not always so simple. He says, you need to be careful because I'm going, basically, he says, I'm going to kill her. I'm going to destroy her. And if you're hanging out with her, you're going to get hurt when that happens. You're going to get hurt when that happens. If you're so deeply, emotionally, financially involved in this system when I take down the system, you're going to get hurt too. Now, he's not saying, be a hermit and live in the middle of nowhere. He's saying, don't let your life become a cog in this wheel of this big system that I'm ready, I'm ready to destroy. The system is going down and there's going to be a lot of pain. But for those who repent and remove themselves, he says, verse 27, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery as I have received, just as I have received authority from my Father. So he says, listen, if you repent you're going to rule in heaven. Which is not something that we think about a lot about heaven, but is something that he says, actually not an insignificant amount in this book, that Christians will rule in heaven with Jesus. He says, I've been given authority to rule, I'm going to give you the authority to rule to the Christian. When someone is super invested in this system, in the system of Jezebel, this dominant money power system. What are they looking for? They're looking for power. Power from politics, power from money. That's what they are looking for. And he's saying, I'm about to give you power. I'm going to give you power, right? But you've got to do it my way. You've got to do it my way. Real power comes from me, says, says Jesus, not from some politician, not from the stock market or from your bank account. There's nothing good that he's going to withhold from the church, right? And they're all looking for this good thing in another way. Some of them are looking for pleasure. Some of them are looking for peace. Some of them are looking for power. And he's saying... Each To each of them, he says, I have it for you. You've got to do it my way, though. If you don't do it my way, you'll get it no way. Let's do things God's way. All right. There's three churches left, and it's been a long time. Has that been enough churches, you think? it's almost 8:30 just three more he says i think that's been enough churches those are those are four good ones i think to pray about those four good ones i think at this time we're going to start we're going to start praying i don't want to be mean to the the people teaching the kids either just it, it, if anyone ever does teach when you go super long, in the other room, they're like, I I, I love the Lord, but I, these kids, you know, um, you know, your <laughs> their works are, the, the love is running out there. Um, anyway, so let's pray in, in light of these churches, right? There's there's three other ones. They're, they're, read it tonight. You'll be blessed because he promised you'd be blessed. But there's four of them, right? There's the church that is doing good works, I know there's a church, there's a lukewarm church that that comes at the end. Personally, I, I don't want to be too hasty. If you're here on a Tuesday night, I don't think you're that. I don't think you're lukewarm. I think maybe you have other problems, but I think that's probably not your problem. Okay. Um, there's a there's a church where like they're just doing well. That could also be you. Right. And then there's a church where they're just faking it. Could be you. I don't think that if you're in a Tuesday night you're faking it. I think that you would reserve your faking for Sunday morning, or for an for maybe Easter's and Easter's and Christmas. I, I believe that somehow, in some way, each of us in this room, God wants wanted to speak to us tonight, right? That is it. Is it that I just feel Like, I'm just working and working and working, and I just don't even, I don't love it anymore, right? And he just says, I I have pleasure. I want to have a pleasurable relationship with you. Return to your first love. Or is it, man, I am going through it. I am going through it at work. I am going through it with my family. It is just hard. Everything is hard. Trying to live for Christ is hard, and I'm trying. And he says, Don't be afraid. Rejoice. Maybe you have a secret sin in your life, and you have zeal for God at the same time, like the church in Pergamum. Tonight's the night to repent and to start going the other way.